going to be about around Genesis 27. Genesis 27. Talking this morning about Jesus is better than Jacob. So all the way through school, I was the scrawniest, the smallest, the shortest, the skinniest kid in my class. And so um, uh, I, uh, my football coach used to tell me, McGowan, you can either be slow or you can be little, but you can't be both, you know. And so I was really appreciated that encouragement. But, um, you know, uh, I was a scrawny guy. I was a little guy. And so it was really, really um, fun when about fifth grade, uh, our coaches got a, a wrestling mat. And I said, this is going to be a fun thing. And so, uh, and, and especially when our coach decided to see what would happen when you pit the smallest guy in class against the biggest guy in class. I think we all know what happens when you do that, but I can tell you the story later. So, but, um, but, but one, of the, one of the perks of being incarcerated at the age of 16, being locked up for a year, one of the perks of that was um, the last seven months or so I was there was I, I, I got to work in an on-campus job after I got my diploma. I worked an on-campus job, an on-campus, on-facility job, uh, and uh, I made 50 cents an hour, and I was a janitor in the gym, which was the, the best job uh, to, to be found there. It was, a, it was a great job. But one, I worked 40, 50 hours a week cleaning toilets and all that, and, and, uh, and that really was the best job available. But... Um, one of the requirements, the, the coach that oversaw the gym told me one of the requirements of working here is you are my workout partner from here on out. You're going to lift weights with me every day. So five days a week, I lifted weights with this coach. And, and uh, I, learned, uh, I learned how to work out, and, and uh, uh, I learned a lot about fitness. My body began to change. My, my spirit man was being transformed, but I began to experience some physical transformation as well. I started adding muscle, started adding size, uh, and, uh, and, and, and with that, I started adding some confidence. And so... Uh, by the time I got to college, I no longer carried myself around um, like a scrawny kid. I carried myself around like a confident young man. And uh, Sonda's not in here, so I can tell you the story. This is when I caught the eye of Sonda McGowan. No, I won't tell you. Um, that's another story. Um, I finally said yes. I finally married her, and that's how it worked. But, um, so I joined a fraternity my freshman year, and guys being guys, you know, we liked to rough house. And I found that I could throw my weight around. I could... I could wrestle with the best of them, and, and, uh, and every year as we um, initiated new pledges, we would play bull in the ring out in the pasture in the dark, you know, bull in the ring, guys get in a circle, and you call one of their names, they go and just plow into the unsuspecting guy in the middle, and so this is one of the reasons women live longer than men, by the way, but anyway, um, and so I had been the undisputed champion of this for years, and by the time my senior year comes along, Sonda had uh, agreed to marry me in November, so this is uh, April or so. I hadn't darkened the uh, door of her weight room about since the moment she said yes, okay? And so, uh, and so, you know, we're doing bull in the ring, and I'm, I'm like the last guy to call, and I'll just lay out each of the pledges. I'm feeling really good about myself. But one of the pledges was a football player, and unlike me, he hadn't been skipping leg day for the last six months or years. And so, and he had a chip on his shoulder because I just body slammed his buddy, and so they call my name, I run at him, and he's ready for me. He got lower than I got, and we collide, and there was a moment there in time that I thought I might have a chance, but quickly that moment faded. I felt the momentum shift in his direction, and, and uh, we both tumbled down, and, and, and he took me down, and, and uh, there was just a hush that fell over the crowd, and it was like the, the mantle has passed from me to this guy. The worst part of the story is that Sonda was the sweetheart of our fraternity, and she saw the whole thing. She was, and I like, I got up and just kind of walked over the guys and stood there. And, and the thing about it is I had gotten cocky 
and I needed to be humbled. But it did not feel good. Uh, I suspect there's been times in your life when you have needed to be humbled. But it doesn't feel good. And so I share this story because today we're talking about Jacob. His name means cheater or trickster, and he was usually the smartest person in the room. He mentally wrestled everybody in his life, and he usually came out on top. But one night, all of his scheming comes to a head, and he finds a wrestling partner that he cannot defeat. He wrestles with God himself. The Lord wrestles Jacob, uh, and Jacob walks away from that very bizarre encounter with God. He walks away with a limp. He walks away not only humbled, but transformed. He gets a new name and a new identity. I believe that, that God defeats the Jacob in me so that a proud taker can become a humble receiver. God wants to defeat the Jacob in you. Now, if your name's Jacob, I'm sure you're a great guy. But we're talking about Jacob in the sense of this biblical meaning of cheater, trickster. God wants to defeat the Jacob in you so that you can be transformed from being a, a proud taker to becoming a humble receiver. Let's kind of flesh that out over the next few minutes. So as we read the, the Jacob story in Genesis, there's really not an easy moral to grab. You know, when we're talking about Daniel or Moses or Abraham, we could say, hey, be like this guy. But when we're talking about Jacob, I mean, at best case scenario, he's, um, he's a go-getter. But more accurately, Jacob's a liar and a cheater, and yet he's chosen by God to carry on his family's heritage. And his behavior seems to pretty much be looked over by his mom and dad and, and even by God. He's blessed in spite of how dysfunctional he is. He's a taker, and he keeps getting away with it. And so it's hard for us to look at Jacob and say, be like this dude, okay? But Jacobs are elevated in our culture. Jacobs are, are the folks that, that do whatever it takes to win. Jacobs are the folks that wouldn't lie to you unless it would benefit them to do so. Jacobs use others and take, 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 all in the name of getting the job done, the ends justify the means, and can justify all of it. So we resent Jacobs. We resent, if we read about him, we resent this Jacob. But part of the reason I believe we resent Jacob is because we resemble Jacob. What drives him? What drives him? Fear drives him. If you strip away my accomplishments, if you strip away my successes, am I going to have any worth? You ever ask that kind of question in the, in the dark, quiet times at night? If you take away my accomplishments, if you take away my achievements, is there anything left of me or am I totally worthless? Jacob's fear, I believe, is he's going to be found worthless. So um, we pick up the story in, in Genesis 27. Isaac, the son of Abram, is old. Isaac's become an old man, and he remembers his, you know, his, his father, Abraham, this larger-than-life man of faith who, who stepped out, followed God, trusted God. The family had some hard times, but God has incredibly blessed them. Isaac falls in love with, with, with Rebekah, and he prays for her. She's barren, but yet she has a child. And, and, and Genesis 25 tells a story that, that, that uh, you know, that... Uh, uh, Rebecca feels this rumbly in her tumbly, and it turns out she's got twins, and they're fighting in there. Even in utero, Esau and Jacob, these brothers, are fighting one another. And God <coughs> says to, to Rebecca, there's two nations in your womb, and the older one is going to serve the younger one. Now, this is an inversion of the social order because in this time, the younger one would serve the older one. But God flips that upside down like he so often does. It says the the the... the the younger one is going to be the one that, that receives the, the inheritance, the birthright. So 
Remember in Genesis 25, Esau is born and he's this beautiful baby covered in, 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 in red hair. And um, I mean, head to toe, woolly guy. And then Jacob is born right behind him, clutching Esau's heel. Even from the beginning, uh, Esau is one who grabs by the heel. Esau is one who's willing to trip somebody else up. He's a cheater. He's a taker. That's what Jacob's name means. And so this is happening even from birth. We read in Genesis 25, 28 that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Rebekah loved Jacob. Um, and, so, and so that's, pretty, uh, that's a pretty uh, 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 devastating statement here. Uh, Mom and dad, uh, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, have played favorites with their children. And, and, and dad loves the one that is the hunter, and mom loves the one that likes to stay around the house. And there's going to be some devastating consequences of this. But when we pick up the story in Genesis 27, Isaac is old. And with the passing of time, his, his eyesight has passed. His eyes have grown dim, we're told, in, in Genesis 27. And it's time for Isaac to do something that he's avoided doing for many, many years. It's time for him to name basically his successor. It's time for him to name who's going to be the head of the family, who's going to carry on the promise of Abram. Now, this is called a blessing, but when we think about blessing, we think of something really weak and diluted like gazuntite, you know, bless you. But this is more than that. This is a sense of, um, of passing on the family heritage. This is a deep affirmation of you are the chosen one, okay? And so, uh, and, and so um, it's come time to do this, and Isaac's dilemma is he's partial to Esau, and Esau was the first one born, and, and, and Esau's his favorite son, but Esau's kind of a fool, a few years before, he had sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. He's married some women that, that uh, his mama doesn't like, and there's some other foolish behavior. So does, is Esau even going to know what to do with the blessing if he gets it? And then there's Rebekah, who is determined that Jacob, her baby boy, uh, her special boy, gets that blessing. And then there's what God said. God had said that the older would serve the younger. God had said that Esau would serve Jacob. So what's Isaac supposed to do with that? So in Genesis 27, Isaac determines he's going to bless Esau, the one he, the one he believes should be blessed. Um, he says, uh, verse 2, my son, he answered, here I am. He said, Behold, I'm old. I don't know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field, hunt game for me. Prepare me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, and that my soul may bless you before I die. So Isaac chooses. Finally, he's avoided this as long as he can. He chooses. I'm going to give the blessing to Esau. Well, Mama Bear, um, Rebecca overhears this. As soon as Esau goes, uh, Mama Bear says, "Hey," uh, she says, "Hey, I'm going to." I'm going to make sure you get the blessing, Jacob. So here's where you go. I'm going to kill a goat, and we're going to cook it. You go put your brother's clothes on, Esau's clothes on. We're going to take some goat skin, and we're going to put it on your smooth skin so that when your blind daddy rubs his hands on your skin, he's going to think that you're your woolly brother, okay? And, uh, and so there's all this conniving going on. There's all this trickery going on, all this deceit going on. And, and, and keep in mind, Isaac knows that this blessing Whichever son he blesses, this is going to unleash consequences for generation to, generations and generations to come. And so, and so Isaac and, uh, excuse me, Jacob and, and, uh, and his mom, Rebecca, they, they lie and they cheat and, and they trick Isaac into blessing Jacob. And, um, and, and, and they seem to get away with it. And so the question, one question then we bring to the text is, does God sanction lying and cheating and tricking and I think we know that he doesn't, 
But in this instance, just like so many instances from my life and your life, behind the hand of our human scheming, there's this sovereign God who is providentially working out even what we intend for evil, he works it out for good. It's a sad story if you think about it. It's sad, obviously, for Esau. I mean, he goes on a hunting trip and he comes back and his brother's stolen his inheritance. It's sad for Isaac, his wife and his son deceive him. There's some sadness in here for Jacob. Just imagine being Jacob for a moment. And the only way your father will bless you is if you pretend to be someone else. Does that speak to anybody? As the Jacob story unfolds, we see a man who's desperate for blessing. Desperate for affirmation, which for most of the people in this room, we can relate to that. He's got a deep hunger, and he's willing to trick anybody to get it. So there's ways that we resemble Jacob. Have you ever pretended to be someone you're not in order to get the blessing of others? I think the answer you're looking for is yes. Has your desire for affirmation from other people, has your desire to receive blessing from other people ever turned ugly and led to deceit and sin? See, God defeats the Jacob in me so so that a proud taker can become a humble receiver so that the Jacob in me is no longer trying to force others to bless me, but I can humbly receive the blessing that only God can give. So what happens after that? Esau is angry, okay? He's he's upset. And so, so Jacob becomes a man on the run. His mama said, go to my kinfolks and find a wife, because apparently Jacob thought it was a good idea to look for a woman at a family reunion, okay? But that's a whole different, that's a whole different conversation. He goes to Laban, which is his uncle, his mom's kinfolk, and, uh, and, uh, and it, fi- it turns out that Laban, his uncle, is a bigger trickster and a bigger cheater than even Jacob is. We remember the story. Jacob worked seven years to marry Rachel. The wedding night, he lifts the veil and rises. He got Leah instead. And Rachel was beautiful, but Leah had a great personality. And, and, so, and, so, um, and then Laban says, hey, you got to work seven more years uh, for Rachel. I'm going to give you Rachel in a week, but you got to work for me seven more years. And, and isn't it interesting that again in his life, Jacob finds himself with a father figure who does not know how to bless him. It's amazing how wounds in our life kind of replay over and over and over again. And so they get in this thing where they're cheating one another and it gets ugly and finally Jacob finds himself running from Laban and he's got his wives and his kids and he, he, he has everything with him and he's got Laban behind him and he, he goes back home. God directs him to go back home. He's got Laban behind him. He's got Esau before him. Esau's got 400 strong men with him and Jacob is between what we call a rock and a hard place. Now, the last time Jacob was in this place of running, he was running to Laban, away from Esau. And there's this incredible thing that happens in Genesis 28. Uh, uh, Jacob's running uh, from uh, Esau to Laban, and, and in Genesis 28, he has this incredible dream. Not only does Jacob seem to get away scot-free for deceiving um, his, his, his dad, But God gives Jacob this incredible blessing of this vision. Jacob has a dream in Genesis 28.10. Now Jacob is running, he's scared, he's, he's, uh, he's alone, and God finally gets Jacob in this vulnerable position. Uh, 28.10, he, he left Beersheba, went to Haran, he came to a certain place, stayed there the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down. I mean, he has a stone for a pillow. This guy's on, he's in a vulnerable spot. 
He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. The angels of God were ascending descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abram, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give you into your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, the south, and in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Now, now this is just almost too much. Jacob has just tricked his dad and gotten away with it, and now now God gives him one of the most amazing visions that any eye has ever seen. It's a vision that points forward to Jesus. Jesus is going to quote this in John 151. He says, I'm the ladder that angels are ascending and descending on. Uh, this vision that Jacob gets is pointing forward to the gospel, but there's good news right here in this moment for Jacob. God's telling him, you're not alone. I'm with you. You don't have to scheme your way through life. You don't have to take your way through life. Just embrace that I am with you. It's amazing that once God gets Jacob in this vulnerable position, tired, hungry, alone, scared, Jacob finally hears the voice of God. How is it with you? Are you more likely to hear from God when you're comfortable or when you're uncomfortable? You know, there's something about Jacob that, that I despise. I mean, how can he get away with all this and have this incredible vision of God? He doesn't deserve that. It's almost as if God does things for people that don't deserve it. And I despise the Jacob in other people, but I defend the Jacob in myself. You ever do that? Despise the Jacob in others and defend the Jacob in you. So God shows him this vision. So now years have passed. He spent all these years with Laban. They've tricked one another. Now he's on the run again, and this time he, he squares things away with Laban, but he's got Esau on the other side of the Yabok River. He does not expect Esau. I mean, last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him, and he had stolen Esau's inheritance. So Jacob's expecting this to be a bad scene. So he sends a gift of livestock across the Yabok River to, uh, to Esau. And then he sends his wives and his children across, and Esau, or excuse me, uh, Jacob remains alone. Let's pick up the story in, in chapter 32. Actually, yeah, chapter 32. Um, Beginning in verse 20. Jacob's in, 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 in telling his servant, he says, you're going to tell Esau, moreover, 32.20, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So again, Jacob sends this gift across to his brother Esau. And, he's, and the, the Hebrew here is really incredible. Literally what Jacob says is, I may appease his face with the present that goes ahead of my face. And afterward, when I see his face, perhaps he will accept my face. I want to appease his face with the gift that, I, that goes ahead of my face so that afterward I will see his face and perhaps he will lift my face. There's a lot of reference to face here. Jacob's face is the face of fear and shame. Esau's face is the face of anger. And the thing about face here is that Jacob has spent his whole life, if you'll pardon the pun, looking for love in all the wrong faces. He couldn't find it in the face of his father. He couldn't find it in the face of Laban. He's not expecting to find it in the face of Esau. So now here he is again, afraid, 
on the, on the run, alone. And this ancient story plays out in chapter 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, crossed the ford of the Yebuk. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. The man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What's he asking for? Blessing. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. And Jacob said to him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name and he blessed him and Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying for I've seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered Peniel means face of God you're kidding me Jacob gets to see God face to face now this story is strange and it's ancient and he's alone and suddenly this dude jumps out and starts beating uh beating Jacob up and wrestling with him would your first thought be this is God uh, usually when bad things happen and painful things happen in our lives, who do we blame for that? That's the devil, right? God wouldn't want me to be in pain. And yet, as Jacob wrestles with this stranger through the night, and as the, the dawn of morning light comes, he sees this face. And you know, Jacob was prepared to see the face of disappointment. He'd been seeing that his whole life. He was prepared to see the face of hate, he was prepared to see the face of, of rage. He was prepared to see the face of condemnation, but he saw a face that was more terrifying than all of that. He saw the face of love. He saw the face of God. And when he saw that face, remember, he was sending a gift before his face to try to appease Esau's face, but what he saw instead was he saw the face of God. I've seen God face to face, and yet I have lived he prevails, we're told that he prevails, but prevail here is the sense of he just, he just hangs in the fight. Frederick Buechner, a Presbyterian author, pastor and author, wrote, the stranger merely touches the hollow of Jacob's thigh, and in a moment Jacob is lying there crippled and helpless. The sense we have, which Jacob must have had, that the whole battle was from the beginning faded to end this way, that the stranger had simply held back until now, letting Jacob exert all his strength and almost win. So that when he was defeated, he would know that he was truly defeated. So that he would know that not all the shrewdness, will, brute force he could muster were enough to get this. Jacob will not release his grip. Only now it is a grip not of violence but of need, like the grip of a drowning man. Jacob was a taker his whole life, and now he's grabbed the stranger that appears out of nowhere and is inflicting pain on him. He grabs him, and he's demanding blessing from him just like he's been demanding blessing from everyone in his life but his as he is wounded by the stranger as he's wounded by God his grip of demand shifts and becomes a grip of desperation and he's like a drowning man just hanging on for dear life and there's got to come a point in our lives where we're no longer making demands of God but we are desperate for God. And that's exactly what happens to Jacob here. He cannot take. All he can do is receive. And he cries out for what he's been looking for his whole life. He says, bless me. Will you bless me? And I don't know if you can tap into your soul and in your heart that struggle, that desire to be blessed. He says, bless me. Affirm me. He sees the stranger's face and it's this face of 
love. Frederick Buechner says that as Jacob limps away from this encounter, he's experienced the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. I just wonder, has your soul been defeated by God? I'm not talking about by life. I'm not talking about by evil. I'm talking about by God. Have you yielded and surrendered your heart, your soul, your body to God? The greatest victory we can ever win is to be defeated by the hands of Jesus Christ. God defeats the Jacob in me so that a proud taker Clenched-fisted taker can become a humble receiver and eventually become a generous giver. So as we close, a couple ways I resemble Jacob, and I suspect you resemble Jacob too. One, I've spent a bunch of my life looking for blessing and love in all the wrong faces. Have you? Because God loves me, he defeats the Jacob in me. Even when I think I'm I'm conning people and conning God, It turns out God has something better up his sleeve and bigger up his sleeve than I can ever fathom. You ever feel like you're you're getting one over on God? You ever feel like you're manipulating those in your life and then it turns out God's got something big and mysterious up his sleeve? God is my enemy before God is my friend. We're enemies, the scripture says, because I'm a sinner and he's not. But he comes at me and he feels like an enemy because he demands everything from me. He demanded everything from Jacob. And the thing about God is he's willing to give us everything. Jesus is still a wrestling champion. The greatest victory you can experience is for your soul to be defeated by Jesus. Jesus is better than Jacob. Jacob puts on his brother's garments to secure blessing from himself. What does Jesus do? Jesus puts on our flesh and blood to secure blessing for us. Jacob takes, Jesus gives. Jacob tricks his father and honors himself. Jesus honors his father and tricks the devil. Man, evil thought that it won when Jesus died on that cross. And yet Jesus is a little bit like Jacob. He had something else up his sleeve. He tricked evil. Jacob limps across the Jabbok River after surrendering to God. He limps transformed, new, different. Jesus comes stepping out of the grave on the third day, resurrected, still bearing on his body the marks of the nails and the spear after surrendering to his father. So as, as the band comes, let's just ask ourselves a couple questions. Where do we go from here? What now? Whose face are you looking to for love and blessing and affirmation? Is it God's face? Amen. Or is it a lesser face? Who are you wrestling right now? How are you? Are you wrestling sickness? Are you wrestling a relationship issue? Are you wrestling some kind of struggle? Yeah, the devil's probably in it. Human sinfulness is in it. But will you say, God, where are you in this? Because often we find that God's the one we're wrestling and we didn't even know it. How's God moving to transform you from being a taker to being a receiver 
to being a giver and what's a practical step you can take. So.